Welcome to Church History for Everyone, a podcast that brings to life the stories of the saints of generations gone by. From Athanasius to William Carey, and from Nero's persecutions to the Great Awakening, we provide a digestible and challenging look at the figures and events that have shaped church history and, in turn, changed the world. Now, here's your host, Christopher Hume. We ended last episode in the year 1609, with the pilgrims moving from Amsterdam to the city of Leiden, just 30 miles away. And one of the main reasons for this, you'll recall, is that when the pilgrims came to Amsterdam, there were already two groups of English separatists there, one under the leadership of John Smith and the other called the Ancient Brethren. And both these groups were embroiled in some pretty serious controversies. And so the pilgrims decided under the leadership of John Robinson to move to the city of Leiden. We also noted how while in Amsterdam, Bradford met his future wife, Dorothy. However, Dorothy being too young to marry was to stay part of the Ancient Brethren Church for five years in Amsterdam until she was old enough to marry and move to Leiden. And so the episode today covers a generous period of 11 years in which the Pilgrim Church in Leiden was finally able to realize its goal of peaceful and delightful society together, free from the persecution of the state. And one of the unique things about the story of William Bradford is that perhaps more than any other figure in church history, his story is the story of a church. And his journal is the journal of a church rather than his own personal story. His life was so tied up with the saints and believers that he fellowshiped with that to think of Bradford is to think of the Pilgrim Church. Now, among other things, the Leiden years were years of church growth. When John Robinson traveled to Leiden from Amsterdam on a reconnaissance mission, he was seeking lodging for a church of only about 100 people. Over the next 10 years in Leiden, the church would grow to over 400 souls. And in this episode, it is fitting that we at least meet one more of the church members that fellowship with William Bradford. One such member was a man named Edward Winslow. Now, Edward Winslow joined the church in Leiden relatively late, coming over from England after Bradford had already been in Leiden for seven years. Upon arriving from England, Winslow was 23 years old, just five years younger than William Bradford. And the two no doubt became closely acquainted with one another and relied upon one another to a great degree, especially in the years ahead, for Edward Winslow would become an important figure in the settlement of the Plymouth colony in America. And concerning these years in Leiden, Edward Winslow was obviously deeply impressed with the spiritual fellowship and brotherly love within the church. He penned these words about the three years that he spent with Bradford and the saints in Leiden. Winslow said this, never people upon earth lived more lovingly together than we the church at Leiden did. And William Bradford agreed, noting that in Leiden, they came as near the primitive pattern of the first churches as any other church of these later times has done. Now, only a fraction of this growing church would eventually come to America. And so these years in Leiden would often be remembered by Bradford and Winslow and others as the true golden years of the church. Now, during the Leiden years, the church grew up, in the words of Bradford, into a great congregation. Commenting on the unique love and fellowship, but also the sometimes needed church discipline, William Bradford wrote this in his journal, quote, If any difference arose or offenses broke out, as cannot but be even amongst the best of men, 
They were always so met with and nipped in the head betimes that love, peace, and communion continued. Or, in some instances, the church was purged of those who were incurable and incorrigible. This ability to get along with others, granting grace and leeway as often as possible, but not failing to deal with incurable cases of sin, would come to characterize Bradford's patient leadership in the years ahead. And the church model where all this growth and tolerance and discipline occurred was the congregational model of church government. William Bradford spent his years in Leiden as part of a church that expected its members to be involved in the affairs of the church. And for the fan of church history and church polity, here is a prime example of the congregational model and its fruits. Bradford and the other church members at Leiden believed that the church was to be self-governed under Christ's headship, of course, but the decisions, directions, and vision for the church were not simply the purview of the pastor, but of the whole body. In 1856, over 200 years after the Pilgrims landed in America, a man named Joshua Wayman Wellman preached a powerful sermon about the church polity of these saints, first experienced in Scrooby, then Leiden, and finally America. This man noted the connection between a church where all the members are involved and a nation where all the citizens are involved. He said this, men who are entrusted with a weighty commission in things spiritual so think of church affairs, will not be so easily satisfied with the passiveness of a condition where the few shut them out from the exercise of rights belonging to every subject of a free government. In other words, people who are taught to be passive in church will likely be passive in the civil government as well. On the other hand, those who are taught to be self-governing and involved in the affairs of the church are likely to be self-governing and involved in the affairs of the civil society in which they live. Those who are taught to quietly acquiesce to the church being governed by the religious leaders will also quietly acquiesce to the state being governed by political leaders and tyrants. This is important to note when we think about William Bradford. The church was Bradford's place of education. Unlike Brewster and Robinson, Bradford never attended university. Nevertheless, he was educated, well-read, intelligent, and quite capable of leading a community. But he learned in the context of a church, not a university, a church where self-government was embraced and championed. You see, the church in Leiden had rejected the control and oversight of the Anglican bishops, believing that the church members themselves are capable and even required to govern their own spiritual affairs. And while they may not have said it at the time, that type of thinking would lead to similar thinking in another area of life, civil affairs. If men are capable of governing their own spiritual affairs, why not are men capable of governing their own civil affairs apart from the rule of a king or tyrant? But that discussion wouldn't come until years later. Now, Pastor John Robinson, of course, was instrumental in Bradford's education. Again, it must be noted, Bradford was not a dictator in the church. He was a loving shepherd, a caring father. And looking back at the Leiden years, Bradford noted how John Robinson not only cared for them in divine things, but he was also very able in directing their civil affairs and foreseeing dangers and troubles ahead. So William Bradford wrote, Robinson was very helpful to their material well-being and was in every way a common father to them all. Pastor John Robinson was what seems to be a dying breed today, a pastor who understands the implications of God's word to every area of life, 
both personal and family, both church and state. Now, a few other things are worth mentioning to give us a picture of the time in Leiden. Upon arriving in the city, the church pulled their resources together and purchased a large residence for their pastor. And it was here in John Robinson's home that the church services would be held. Then 21 of the families built small homes in the garden surrounding Robinson's house. And so Bradford wrote, they lived together in peace and love and holiness. Now nearby was a prominent Calvinist university. And though he never officially attended the school, Bradford likely spent some time there either reading books in the library or listening to debates that occurred on campus. In fact, during the time of Bradford's stay in Leiden, there was serious controversy between the Arminians and the Calvinists. Bradford writes that the Arminians with their theology were quote, molesting the whole state and the city of Leiden in particular. So much was this problem that the canons of Dort were actually held in Holland near the end of Bradford's stay in the nation. And in Leiden in particular, there were almost daily debates between a Johannes Polyander, a Calvinist professor, an Episcopius, an Arminian professor. John Robinson, though he was preaching at least three times a week, attended these debates as often as he could, listening intently. Soon, Robinson became so well-versed in the matter that Polyander, the Dutch Calvinist professor and esteemed theologian, requested that Robinson take over and debate the Arminian. Robinson was hesitant to do so, but after much encouragement from others, perhaps even from Bradford himself, Robinson relented and became, in the words of Bradford, quote, a terror to the Arminians. I mention these things because in Bradford's journal, the 10 years in Leiden received only a few pages. Nothing is written of Bradford's marriage or the birth of his son, but the fellowship and growth of the church and the spiritual conflict between the truth of God and the error of the Arminians is recorded for posterity. Again, one must not conclude from this that Bradford did not care about those personal details, but rather he was writing an account of the group as a whole, not a personal memoir. This explains why we learn details about the church, but little about Bradford's personal business. But some of those facts about the church are rather interesting. For example, Bradford's journal includes a letter from John Robinson, the pastor, and William Brewster, who became an elder in the church, writing to someone in England defending the church's views in Leiden. In the letter, Robinson and Bradford explain that the church in Leiden agrees with the French Reformed churches on nearly everything except five points. And the five points that Bradford's church disagreed with the French Reformed church are as follows. Number one, whereas the French Reformed church's ministers prayed with their heads covered, Robinson and Brewster prayed with their heads uncovered. Number two, the French Reformed Church seemed to select governing elders who were not required to teach God's word. The pilgrims, however, required teaching of any elder. Number three, the French Reformed Church elected elders and deacons once a year or every two years, whereas the pilgrims elected their officers in the church for lifetime service. Number four, the French Reformed Churches seemingly addressed public scandals privately in their consistories the pilgrims, however, in keeping with their congregational church polity, delivered admonitions and excommunications for public scandals publicly. And number five, the pilgrims would only baptize an infant if at least one parent was a member of a church. Some of the French Reformed churches were apt to baptize children whose parents were not church members at all. Several other interesting events occurred during the Leiden years that Bradford did not record. Upon arriving in Leiden, Bradford took up another position within the textile industry. 
Many in the congregation did likewise, while others found employment as masons, carpenters, brewers, and metal workers. Now, in order to be part of the Trades Guild, Bradford had to become a citizen of Leiden. And in the year 1612, at the age of 22, he did just that. Around the same time, Bradford's uncle Robert died back in England. And Bradford finally inherited his family property. When he received his inheritance, he almost immediately sold it, severing his final ties to rural Austerfield. With the money Bradford received, he purchased a small house and likely a weaving loom from which he could earn his living. Up until this point, Bradford had lived with the Brewsters. Now he was preparing for life on his own, though still intimately connected to the church living next door. The next year, at the age of 23, William Bradford was to marry 16-year-old Dorothy May. The five years had passed quickly, and the wedding took place in Amsterdam on December 10, 1623. Of particular interest to us is that there was no religious service. The separatists found no warrant in the Bible for the church to be involved in weddings and left the affair as a civil one. The Bradfords, however, were not the only ones to marry during the Leiden years. Over 45 English weddings took place while the church was in Leiden. Along with Dorothy, many others from the ancient Brethren Church in Amsterdam joined the church in Leiden, contributing to its growth, no doubt. Among these newcomers from the ancient Brethren was a man named Samuel Fuller. Fuller became a deacon in the church in Leiden. He would later serve as a physician and surgeon in America. Now, much more could be said about the Leiden years, but we move on now to the reasons Bradford and others had for leaving Holland. Why, after all they had been through to establish themselves in Leiden, would they leave for America? Much has been said on this topic, but I limit myself to the four reasons Bradford himself gives in his journal. Here are the four reasons Bradford gave for why the church was considering leaving after all they had accomplished in moving to Leiden. Number one, they were experiencing great difficulty in providing for their families. As such, they seriously questioned if others would be willing to join them in Leiden. Many who came to Leiden, Bradford wrote, could not endure the continual labor and hard fare and other inconveniences. Some who would have loved to fellowship with the Leiden saints and the purity of the gospel were choosing to instead suffer bondage in England. This is the first point Bradford mentions, and that is noteworthy. While some have criticized the pilgrims for their lack of evangelistic zeal, they were no doubt desirous to see the church grow, as evidenced by the fact that they considered another perilous journey just so that others could join them in better conditions. Now, hindsight is 2020, and looking back, one wonders if Bradford would have retained this argument if he knew what lay ahead in America, at least during the initial years of the Pilgrim's stay. Number two, and closely related to the first point, was the fact that many within the church itself might begin to scatter if changes weren't made. So in reason number one, the church isn't going to grow if we stay here. Reason number two, the church is actually going to get smaller because people are going to leave based on the hard conditions here. And number three, the conditions in lighting were causing many of the children to be forced to work beyond their strength. The bodies of the children, Bradford writes, were being bowed under the weight of their labors. Even more concerning was the fact that many of the youth were falling into sin and worldliness, being influenced by the loose living of many of the Dutch living around them. This fact was clearly very important to Bradford and others. The future of the church seemed fragile. But it wasn't because of religious persecution from tyrants. Historian Robert McKenzie provides some interesting commentary here. He says this, quote, Compared to the dangers they faced in England, the hardships in Holland were so ordinary. 
I don't mean to minimize them, but merely point out that they are difficulties we are more likely to relate to. They worried about their children's future. They feared the effects of a corrupt and permissive culture. They had a hard time making ends meet. They wondered how they would provide for themselves in old age. Does any of this sound familiar? And in contrast to their success in escaping persecution, they found the cares of the world much more difficult to evade. And finally, reason number four, they desired to advance the gospel of Christ to foreign lands. Now it is true that it would be wrong to say that this was the one and only motivating factor in the pilgrims coming to America. We have already seen that in Bradford's first three and seemingly driving reasons for considering a move. However, it would also be wrong to say that the gospel passion played no part in the matter. Concerning this fourth reason to leave Holland, William Bradford wrote that the saints in Leiden, quote, cherished a great hope and inward zeal of laying good foundations, or at least of making some way towards it, for the propagation and advance of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in the remote parts of the world, even though they should be but stepping stones to others in the performance of so great a work. And so the church was forced to decide on several things. Should they leave? Where should they go? And because it would be unwise for them all to leave at once, perhaps the most painful question was this, who should leave and who should stay? They knew that if part of the church left first, even in the hopes of the others joining later, they might never see each other again. For a group that had been through so much over the past decade and a half, this prospect no doubt caused great grief and sadness among the saints. Now we know that Bradford would be among those leaving, and so we see the years in Leiden coming to a close for him. For the past six years, he had enjoyed married life in his modest home. Two years into their marriage, William and Dorothy welcomed a son, John, perhaps named after their pastor. Young John, however, was to be the only child of Dorothy May. We wonder if they had other children who died in infancy, but we just don't know. We are left to imagine what life was like for the Bradford trio in Holland. What we do know is that these were their only years together as the days ahead were going to bring more pain and separation than they had hitherto experienced. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Church History for Everyone. For information about following Jesus, the King of History, visit reformedhope.com and be sure to join us for our next episode. Until then, go live out your story as a servant of the risen Savior.